السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, for the past few weeks we have been studying the famous hadith of Ifq related by Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha in which she relates a very <coughs> poignant and personal account of her trial as a result of various allegations that were levelled against her. This is famously known as Hadith al-Ifq, the Hadith of the Great Lie. Last week we completed the reading, translation, summary meaning of the Hadith. And I did say that we would conclude with two things. One, an explanation of the verses of the Qur'an that were revealed on that occasion. And two, the salient lessons that can be learnt and drawn from this episode. First of all, a quick summary. In the fifth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ travelled on a journey known as the Campaign of Banu Mustaliq, also known as the Campaign of Muraisiyya. On the on one of the final legs of that journey, on his return to Medina, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, who was with him and who accompanied him on this trip, she happened to lose her necklace, as a result of which she was detained and unable to join the caravan on their return. They inadvertently left her behind. She was then picked up and brought to the camp by a companion who was appointed by the Prophet ﷺ for such a task, Safan ibn Mu'attal radiyallahu anhu. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, the leader of the hypocrites, who never spared any efforts or missed an opportunity to hurt and harm the Prophet ﷺ and his followers, he, upon seeing and learning of Aisha radiyallahu anha returning to the camp alone with Safan ibn Mu'attal, he, he instigated a rumor 
and very lewdly accused her of adultery. This rumour spread amongst the believers and throughout Aisha, well, amongst the believers and the hypocrites. Umul Mu'mineen Aisha anha was totally unaware and when she returned to Medina she fell ill. It was only after some period that she first learnt of these rumours that were being circulated about her, accusing her of adultery. She, her illness grew worse and thereafter a very turbulent period ensued in which a lot happened which we have discussed in detail. Eventually the Prophet received a revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which she was her name was cleared and she was exonerated of all blame. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala threatened and warned those who had instigated this rumour as well as those who had perpetuated it of dire consequences both in this world and in the hereafter. We've covered all of this in great detail. Now, I just like, on that occasion, she says that ten verses were revealed. This doesn't mean that only ten verses were revealed. A number of verses were revealed of Surah An-Nur in sets. But the ten verses that were revealed were those that were revealed as a set that was directly related to this one particular incident. There were other verses also which are also related and I will touch upon them too. <coughs> so the verses in question are from Surah An-Nur in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says First, I'll provide a short commentary on these verses before we move on to the actual lessons from this hadith. So Allah Azza wa Jal says, Verily those who brought forth the ifk, the great lie, they are a group from amongst you. One of the meanings of that verse is that this threat to the unity of the Muslim community in Medina, this great danger, this overwhelming fitna, strife and discord, this did not come from outside. Sadly, it came from within the Muslim community. And although it was the doing of the leader of the hypocrites, indeed he was greatly responsible and he played the greatest role. But ultimately he only started the rumour. Thereafter, many of those who perpetuated the rumour and continued to repeat it, hearing it and conveying it to others, they were both hypocrites as well as Muslims 
who, although sincere believers at heart, and who are not hypocrites still, they failed in their duty in many ways. They failed to act upon the teachings of Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As a result of their failures, such a great trial ensued. A trial, a fitna that affected not only Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, but her father, the best of believers, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu And most importantly, it directly and personally affected the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And it engulfed the whole community of Medina. Muslim and non-Muslim. Sincere believers and hypocrites. And it resulted in so much rumour-mongering, gossip, threats of violence, that the community, the believers, the companions, almost came to battle with swords in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in his presence. There was heightened tension, inflamed emotions, great confusion, anger. And in that anger and confusion, tempers flared. It was a fire. A fire in the home, in the masjid, in the whole city. And all of this was a result of just tongues wagging. Allahu Akbar. And the result of failures in the Muslim community itself. Their failure to act on the teachings of Allah and of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Their failure to be responsible. Their failure to live according to the teachings of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. These slight failures on their part, on their part ultimately resulted in this great fitna. So the most tragic thing was that it wasn't a threat from the outside. This wasn't an attack from the outside. It was from within the community, within the community itself. So in the ja'u bil ifki minkum, Allah says, indeed, those who brought forth the great lie, they are a party from you. لا تحسبوه شر لكم بل هو خير لكم. However, do not consider this worse for you; rather, it is better for you. Meaning, <coughs> tragic though this whole episode was, ultimately there was great wisdom in it. Through this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set a precedent and a pattern for the believers to follow. Using a live example of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his household. A real example of his wife. And a real example of the believers. Allah has set a precedent. We know this has actually happened in history. We know the consequences. We know the results. 
We know the harms and the dangers. And we now know very clearly how we, as individuals, as a community, as people, should behave. We know what should be done, what shouldn't be done, what should be avoided. What is tolerable, what's intolerable in cases such as this. Furthermore, why is it good? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested those whom he loved the most. He tested the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He tested his wife. He tested his household. He tested the community of believers. And in any test, people are placed under great stress and strain to see how they perform. And although on this occasion, a few people failed, not everybody, not even the majority, but some, the rest excelled. And even those of the believers who failed, Allah still enabled them to repent sincerely. And their tawbah was accepted, ultimately. Through this, Allah elevated the rank of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. And Allah undoubtedly elevated the rank of his Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa Allah tests those whom he loves. And Allah loves the prophets and the messengers more than the rest of his creation. And that's why in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, أَشَدُّ النَّاسِ بَلَاءً أَذَنْبِيَاءُ ثُمَّ لَمْ ثُمَّ لَمْ that the most intensely tested of all people are the prophets. Then those who are the best, then those who are the best. And Allah has tested His prophets with members of His family, of their families. Allah tested Nuh through his wife and his son. Allah tested Lut through his wife. Allah tested Ibrahim through his father. Allah tested the prophets through their family members. And on this occasion, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested the Prophet through his noble wife, Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. So it was a test for all of those concerned. But ultimately, they passed that test. So in the long run, as part of the greater picture, Allah says, although this was painful and tragic, overall and ultimately, this whole episode was better for you. لا تحسبوه شرا لكم Do not consider it an evil for you, or worse for you. بَلْ هُوَ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ Nay, it is better for you. لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مِّنْهُمْ مَكْتَسَبَ مِنَ الْإِثْمِ For each person of them, meaning of this party, is what he has earned of sin. The greater the role played by an individual, the greater the burden and responsibility shouldered by an individual, in this whole episode, that individual will suffer commensurate consequences. 
as much as they were responsible for, they will suffer in this dunya and in the akhirah. وَالَّذِي تَوَلَّا كِبْرَهُ مِنْهُمْ لَهُ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ Allah says, and he who assumed the greatest role of them in this, for him is a great punishment. And who was that? Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul. He was the one who instigated the rumor, who first made the allegation, and he will suffer the greatest of the consequences. Then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَوْلَا إِذْ ظَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بِأَنفُسِهِمْ خَيْرًا وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكُمْ مُبِينَ He addresses a believer saying to them, Why wasn't it that when you heard this, believing men and believing women thought good of themselves? And before I continue, I'd just like to mention that it's remarkable that in this whole set of verses, Allah admonishes criticizes, blames, rebukes, and scolds the believers over and over again in all of these upcoming verses. Yet the one who played the greatest part, the chief instigator of this rumor, the one who was the most responsible, Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul, Allah does not mention him by name. Allah does not even refer to his hypocrisy. Allah does not speak of him at length or in great detail. Allah dismisses him in one sentence with the words, وَالَّذِي تَوَلَّا كِبْرَهُ مِنْهُمْ لَهُ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ And he who assumed the greatest role of them in this what does Allah say of him? Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul. Does Allah abuse him? Does Allah waste words on him? Does Allah speak of him in great detail or at length? No. Allah simply says three words. Lahu adhabun For him is a great punishment. Bas. That's all. Yet, the remaining part of these verses... And a great number of them are devoted to the believers. Why? One of the reasons is, it's very simple. What more does one expect from a munafiq and a hypocrite? What else does one expect from a hypocrite? A hypocrite is insincere, is false. A hypocrite is deluded and delusional. A hypocrite attempts to deceive not only the creation but also the creator and ultimately falls into foolishness and deception himself. He deceives no one but himself. Nothing better can be expected from a munafiq. But why isn't it that the believers behaved better? One can expect something like this from a munafiq, from a hypocrite. But from the mu'mineen, from the believers, no. 
So Allah simply says, وَالَّذِي as for one who assumed the greatest role of them in this, for him is a great punishment. But then Allah turns his attention to the believers. Why wasn't it that when you heard this, O believers, the believing men and believing women thought good of themselves. And why didn't they say, this is a clear lie? What does that mean? Allah is saying to the believers of Medina, when you first heard the allegation that the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, the mother of the believers, had committed the major sin of adultery, Why didn't believing men and believing women think good of themselves and say this is a clear lie? The meaning of think good of themselves is as follows. It's related that, well, one incident or one example one, one example from the lives of the companions will illustrate the meaning of the verse. It's related that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, radiyallahu anhu, he was speaking, he was conversing with his wife, Ummu Ayyub. So Ummu Ayyub said to him, have you heard what people are saying about Aisha and Safwan? So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu said to her, Yes, however, tell me this. Would you do something like that? I.e. would you commit the sin? Although he never said it explicitly. Everyone knew what the allegation was. So he said to his wife, would you do something like that? Umu Ayyub al-Ansariya obviously protested in the strongest of terms. As would anyone. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari said to her, minki. Then Aisha is better than you. Meaning, if you cannot imagine yourself committing such a sin, if you cannot believe of yourself that you would, you would commit such a sin, then how can you expect or imagine or envisage someone of the caliber of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha being guilty of such a sin? This is the meaning of Why didn't believing men and believing women think good of themselves? A truly 
superb manner of addressing this. Now why wasn't it that when you heard this allegation, believing men, believing women thought good of themselves, what's a lesson for all of us? Allahu Akbar. Allah calls us to introspection. Allah reminds us to think about ourselves before we think about others. And not to think of ourselves in a selfish manner, but to think about ourselves before we think about others. To judge ourselves before we judge others. To criticize ourselves before we criticize others. To hold ourselves responsible before we hold others responsible. To question ourselves before we question others. How arrogant can it be? How arrogant is it? That a person believes with conviction that I am not capable of committing such a sin. That my wife is not capable of committing such a sin. My mother is an angel. She is not capable of committing such a sin. My sister is not capable of committing such a sin. My father, my brother, my son, my family members. I and my loved ones are incapable of committing such a sin. We're not just talking about this, any other sin. And yet, we arrogantly believe that we are incapable of committing such a sin, we and our loved ones, but others are corrupt, others are evil, others are weak, others succumb to temptation, others are inferior to us, and they indeed are capable of committing such a sin. In this one verse, Allah mentions... So many different things in just a few words. So many lessons. Judge yourselves before you judge others. Question yourselves before you question others. And it is the height of arrogance that you believe that you are so innocent and yet others are so guilty. That you are so pure and yet others are so corrupt. That you are forgiving to yourselves but so judgmental and punishing towards others. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and Allah, in his hadith, in his actions, in his teachings, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have done this so often, called towards introspection, self-meditation, self-contemplation, to think about ourselves before we think about others. In a good way, meaning, not in a selfish way. When it comes to wealth, Allah and His Messenger wasallam have taught us to think of others before ourselves. When it comes to dunya, when it comes to the world, when it comes to sharing, when it comes to good, to think of others before we think of ourselves. When it comes to sin, being judgmental, To think of ourselves before we think of others. To give you one other example related to the same thing, adultery. 
Imam Ahmad ibn Hamdul rahmatullahi alayhi and others relate that a young man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, grant me permission to commit adultery. Grant me permission. I'm a young man. Grant me permission to commit zina, adultery. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, Do you wish that someone commits adultery with your mother? He said, no, of course, Messenger Allah. Of course not. Would it please you that someone commits adultery with your sisters? With your sister? He said, no, of course not, O Messenger of Allah. Prophet wasallam then said, well, in the same way, it does not please people. And nor do people want that adultery should be committed with their mothers, their sisters and their daughters. Then the Prophet ﷺ placed his noble hand on his chest and prayed for him. Oh Allah, forgive him his sin. Make him chaste, guard his chastity, and purify his heart. <coughs> the point I wish to raise is, how did the Prophet ﷺ explain to him? He told him that when he was about to commit this sin, when he wanted to commit this sin, he told him to think of himself and his loved ones. That if you cannot tolerate this for yourself... How can you tolerate for others? In a similar way here, Allah says, when you first heard of this allegation, that the mother of the believers, the wife of the Prophet wasallam, Aisha radiallahu anha, had been accused of adultery, why didn't you think good of yourselves? How would you think good of yourselves? To think that is my mother capable of committing such a sin? Is my sister capable of committing such a deed? Is my loved one capable of committing such indecency? If I cannot contemplate this for my loved ones or for myself, then how dare I contemplate this for the mother of the believers, for the wife of the Prophet Allah then says, وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكُمْ مُبِينَ Why didn't they think good of themselves and immediately come to the realization and make the conclusion that this is a clear lie? That's the way to do it. If someone is accused, if we think of someone else, before we judge them, before we question them, let's think of ourselves and say, would I do it? No. Well, if I wouldn't do it, how can I imagine that such a person would do it? This is a clear lie. truth is, why does Allah say there's lots of psychology here? Why not? Psychology is considered a relatively recent science. And even then, it's a very imprecise science. We, now, we are now beginning to touch the surface 
of explaining our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our decisions, the inner workings of our minds and hearts. But one is still imprecise. A lot of it is still speculative. And people are still exploring. However, the creator of creation, the creator of the hearts and minds of people, and his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, have, without the name and the label, have explained so many truths of the inner workings of our hearts and minds 14 centuries ago. Why does Allah say, why didn't believing men and women think good of themselves? And why believing men and believing women? One of the reasons is that we often see others as a reflection of ourselves. We project ourselves onto others. And famously, we often indulge and are guilty of the projection of guilt. If we are guilty of something, then we can't bear to believe that of ourselves. So we accuse others of the, exactly the same thing. But before I explain that, one thing. Why does Allah say, why, don't, why didn't believing men and believing women think good of themselves? The lesson here is that if sincere believers thought along these lines, that they first questioned themselves, just like Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu did, and in some narrations, Abu Ayyub al-Ka'b radiyallahu anhu did exactly the same, which is that, are you capable of committing such a sin? No. Well, in that case, she who is far better than you is also incapable of committing such a sin. Good people see the good in others. Evil people see their own evil reflected in others. There's an anecdote, whether it's a true story or not. Well, well it's, a, it's an anecdote, whether it's true or not. Allahu Adam, But it beautifully illustrates the point. And this is in an Islamic context. There was a person who would spend the whole night, sorry, who would return from the masjid late after Fajr Salah at the time of sunrise. And he would make his way home after having performed Fajr Salah in congregation in the masjid. And this was his daily routine. There was another individual who would spend the entire night in a den of vice. And he also, late after the crack of dawn, just about the time of sunrise, would, after a night of reveling, make his way home in a stupor of drunkenness. Their paths would cross every day. 
He probably never looked so intoxicated, but normal. Their paths crossed daily in the morning. One returning from the masjid making his way home, and one returning to home after a night or after a night in a den of vice. The one who had just prayed every day would walk past him and think to himself, MashaAllah, just as I am returning home after having performed Fajr Salah with Jama'ah, Alhamdulillah and MashaAllah, he is doing exactly the same. And the other would see the Musalli and think to himself, Wah, just like I've spent a night reveling and partying and now going home, he's done exactly the same. We all see ourselves in others. We think of others as we think of ourselves. And our judgment of others is actually a reflection of ourselves. Our thoughts and our suspicions of others are a reflection of ourselves. We indulge, we engage in the projection of guilt. And that's mentioned in the Quran. Allah says, whoever commits a sin or a crime or an error... And then he falsely accuses an innocent soul of that same sin or error. Then indeed this person has borne the burden of a great sin and a great calumny and allegation. And even better than this, Verse, another verse explains it beautifully. We've all heard this verse before, and it's often cited and quoted. And it's, in, it's from Surah An-Nur also, and it was revealed in the context of this story. Allah says, Al-Khabithatu lil-Khabithina wal-Khabithuna lil-Khabithat Wal-Tayyibatu lil-Tayyibina wal-Tayyibuna lil-Tayyibat Allah says the pure sorry Al-Khabithad the impure are for the impure men Al-Khabithin Wal-Khabithun and the impure men Lil-Khabithad are for the impure And the pure are for the pure men. And the pure men, or shall we say, the pure people, are for the pure. These, they are innocent of what they say of them. For them is forgiveness and a noble sustenance. Now, we've all heard this verse and its translation that the pure are for the pure and the impure are for the impure. And normally it's taken to mean that al khabithat which is feminine, 
للخبيثين which is masculine that the impure women are for the impure men and the impure men are for the impure women and the pure women are for the pure men and the pure men are for the pure women now that meaning is correct however it's not specified that al-khabithat and at-tayyibat which is a feminine refers to women yes all the masculine words the pure and the impure can refer to men and they can refer to people in general but it's not specified that khabithat and tayyibat meaning the impure masculine and pure sorry the impure feminine and the pure feminine tayyibat that this actually refers to women it doesn't it's not specified that's a meaning that we infer and it's a correct meaning however how did some of the famous scholars of tafsir from the earliest generation and some of the companions explain this verse sayyidina abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma the cousin brother of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the leading exegete of the quran he explained it in a certain manner and so did all the following scholars from amongst the famous tabi'in the successors to the companions and their students imam sa'id ibn jubair imam mujahid imam ata imam al-hasan al-basri and others they all said that the meaning of this verse is as follows including abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma and the reason i said feminine is that before we carry on in arabic everything there's no neutral gender in english we have he she and it and for items we use it and often we use that for animals also it so there's no neutral gender in arabic in arabic everything is either masculine or feminine and plurals are treated as feminine the word kalima meaning word is also feminine so this is why when we say al khabithat it's it's a feminine word but it does not necessarily have to refer to women it could refer to something else and inanimate non-living objects including just words and it's correct because there's no neutral gender in arabic everything's either feminine or masculine now al khabithat these ulama from amongst the tabi'in and the famous companion abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma they all say that the meaning of this verse is al khabithat lil khabithin not that impure women are for impure, uh, impure men no they say impure words are for impure men and Im- impure people impure words are for impure people and impure people are for impure words and pure words are for pure people and pure people are for pure words
Why is that? As I was saying, we see others as a reflection of ourselves. Often, what we say of others, think of others, project onto them, fling at them, throw at them, accuse them of, push their way, is all an attempt to rid ourselves of the same thing and paste it onto somebody else. We see others as we see ourselves. Because our filthy, evil minds, our evil souls, our corrupt character, cannot conceive of anything else. We are corrupt within. There's a saying in Arabic, which means, in English, that a spout or a funnel will only pour what's in the pot. A spout will only pour what's in the pot. You have a pot and a container, and you have a spout. The spout will only pour out and ultimately deliver what's contained in the pot. And this is what Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu said, very wise saying, that the tongue will only reveal what's in the heart. If it's not there, it won't come out of here. The tongue can the tongue doesn't have a choice. The tongue can't invent th- invent things by itself. The tongue is a channel, it's a conduit, it's a spout, it's a funnel. The tongue is simply a canal. It merely lets pass through what comes from the heart and mind. If the tongue says something. It can only say it if it's there in the heart, if it's there in the character. So, when a person speaks evil, it's a reflection of their inner evil. When a person accuses someone of something, often it's a reflection of themselves. And what better way to describe them in those verses of the Quran? Al khabithatul lil khabithin. Not that. Impure women are for impure men. No. Impure words are for impure people. And impure people are for impure words. And pure words are for pure people. And pure people are for pure words. This is why Allah says, These people, they are innocent of what they say about them. For them is forgiveness and a noble assistant. Simple meaning, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul accused Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha of this great sin. Allah says, his impure words, his filthy accusation, his lowly allegation, his evil thoughts, his evil words, are all a reflection of his character, of his mind, of his heart, of his being. Not of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. And that's the meaning of impure words are for impure people. And impure people are for impure words, what does that mean? It's simple. This kind of language is suited to such individuals. This is what they are, so this is what will come out. This is why it's said of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That he was not fahish or mutafahish. Meaning, that he was not rude. 
He was not lewd. He was not obscene in his talk. He was not vulgar. Nor could he affectate vulgarity. Which means affectating vulgarity. To give you an example. We find ourselves changing our tune, our tone of voice, our vocabulary, and even our accent, depending on the context and the company. So sometimes we see young people, and even older people, when they, with a group, especially in a gang, then not only does their attitude change, but their language the vocabulary, the voice, the tone, the choice of words, even the pronunciation. And sometimes a person is not normally vulgar or rude, but to join in and not to be left out, or not to be considered weird or awkward, and to blend in with the group, a person may at times... Use that language. But it's not their everyday vocabulary or language. They aren't vulgar normally. They aren't rude. But they can still manage it when, it, when they want to. But the Prophet ﷺ, neither was he fahish. He wasn't vulgar or lewd or obscene in his, or indecent in his speech. Nor could he even simulate or affectate lewdness and indecency. Meaning, even if the Prophet ﷺ wanted to do it, he couldn't do it because it just wasn't there. That's how pure he was. And that's how a believer should be. So this kind of filthy language, this kind of allegation... These kinds of thoughts. They are suited for such people. And such people are suited to such vocabulary and such words. But the pure, Allah says pure words are for pure people. And pure people are for pure words. These, they are innocent of what the others say of them. This takes us back to the verse which I began with. Which is, this is why Allah says, when you first heard this, why didn't... Believing men and believing women think good of themselves. Those who are sincere and good will see the good in others. Those who are not so will see their own reflection in others. And their own character, their own mentality, their own thinking will be reflected in their words. So when Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul accused of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha and Safwad ibn al-Mu'attal radiyallahu anha of adultery, this said more of him than it said of them. They were pure, they were innocent. But these allegations more reflected his own corruption and his own filth and indecency, his own vulgarity and his own sinful corrupt nature than it did anything else. And the same goes for us today. We who accuse others so quickly, if we were sincere, if we sincerely acted on the teachings of Allah and His Messenger, we thought good of others. If we were non-judgmental, if we were clean and pure of heart and mind, our words, our vocabulary, would also be clean. 
and would reflect our pure character. When we accuse others of sins, often that is more a reflection of ourselves. That is more a damning judgment and an indictment of ourselves than it is of the victims of our abuse and our allegations. Allahu Akbar. All of that is contained in just a few words and one verse. لَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُونَ Why wasn't it that when you heard this, ظَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بِأَنفُسِهِمْ خَيْرًا Believing men and believing women thought good of themselves. وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكُمْ مُبِينَ And why didn't they say this is a clear lie? Ifk means lie. This is the same word ifk which I mentioned about the hadith. That the whole hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha is known as a hadith al-ifk, a hadith of the great lie. And this word is mentioned in the Qur'an more than once. It's mentioned here more than once also in just these few verses. Then Allah says, لَوْلَا جَاءُوا عَلَيْهِ بِأَرْبَعَةِ فَإِذْ لَمْ يَأْتُوا بِالشُّهَدَاءِ فَأُولَاكَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ هُمُ الْكَاذِبُونَ Why didn't they produce four witnesses? Therefore, when they did not produce any witnesses, then these people, they are liars in the sight of Allah. وَلَوْلَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ And if it wasn't for the mercy of Allah and His grace, in the world and in the hereafter, لَمَسَّكُمْ فِيمَا أَفَضْتُمْ فِيهِ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ Surely, a great punishment would have befallen you in what you indulged in. The meaning is that this whole episode and your mistakes and your failures in checking this allegation, in refusing to believe in it, your failure to some of you, the failure of some of you, to repeat this allegation and not to dismiss it as a lie instantly. This failure was not a minor thing. It was a great thing. In fact, it was so great, it was so grave, that it deserved the punishment of Allah. But Allah's mercy and His grace on you saved you from that punishment. Then Allah describes it further, how great it was. Allah says, When you were exchanging this allegation with your tongues, when you were saying with your mouths, ما ليس لكم به علم, that of which you had no knowledge. وَتَحْسَبُونَهُ هَيِّنَا And you thought of it as being light, low, inconsequential. وَهُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عَظِيمٌ When it was great and grave in the sight of Allah. See, this is it. We say things. We make allegations. We create lies and we repeat lies without second thought. And we think nothing of the sins of the tongue. And this is what this refers to. In Islam, 
everything is given its due status. Allah being the creator has the wisdom to tell the believers to avoid certain things which may appear to be trivial to them but which are grave and serious in the sight of Allah because of their consequences and the damage and the harm that they cause. Intoxicants are banned, drugs, because of the damage they do. Physical violence is punished because of the damage it does. Only till recently, again, psychologists and psychiatrists knew nothing and thought nothing and people in general thought nothing of verbal, mental and emotional abuse. In fact, till recently, even physical abuse was considered the norm. Children being beaten in schools, in homes, whipped, caned, lashed. A child is unable to pronounce a single word, and he or she is punished severely, physically. That was considered the norm. So let alone emotional, physical, sorry, emotional and mental verbal abuse, even physical abuse was not thought of being so serious. Now that we recognise the far-reaching damage and the ills and the terrible consequences of such abuse, physical as well as mental, emotional and verbal, now there is an attempt to curb all of this, including verbal and emotional abuse and mental abuse. But this verbal Emotional and mental abuse was recognised as being a sin and a crime and a thing of great gravity and serious consequences by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa 14 centuries ago. And this is why the sins of the tongue have always been considered sins of the tongue. They have never been regarded as being harmless. Same here. When we accuse someone, See, often the mentality is, you punch someone, it's serious. You verbally abuse them, it doesn't matter. You falsely accuse them, it doesn't matter. This is why Allah says, And you thought of it as being light, trivial, whereas it was great and grave in the sight of Allah. Because it does untold damage. It damages the individual, the victim of the allegation. It damages the whole of society. And most of us, we feel that it doesn't mean anything until we become victims of it ourselves. The day someone lies about you, against you, in a very serious manner. The day someone invents and fabricates lies against you, and there are consequences for those lies, then you will feel the pain. Then you will realise 
the serious prohibition in Islam of ghiba, of backbiting, of buhtan, of calumny and allegation, of speaking without knowledge. That's why Allah says here, وَتَقُولُونَ بِأَفْوَاهِكُمْ مَا لَيْسَ لَكُمْ بِهِ عِلْمٍ And you were saying with your mouths that of which you have no knowledge. We often just repeat what we hear. And the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith, كَفَى بِالْمَرْءِ كَذِبًا أَنْ يُحَدِّثْ بِكُلِّ مَا سَمِعَ It is sufficient for a man to be a liar that he relates what he hears. Simple explanation. <clears throat> we hear, we learn of, let's say, an average of approximately, I'm just giving an example of a hundred things a day. These hundred things, 50% of them are, 40% of them are true. 40% of them are a mixture of truth, falsehood, and exaggerations. And 20% of them are outright lies. A person who has a habit of relaying everything that he or she hears will inevitably end up speaking 40% of the truth, 40% of mixed truths and falsehoods and exaggerations, and 20% of outright lies. So for a person to be a liar, it's sufficient that they don't actually allege anything themselves or accuse someone of something themselves. It's sufficient for them to merely repeat what they hear. Rasulullah says, that alone is sufficient for them to become a liar. Allahu Akbar. We think nothing of the sins of the tongue. Whereas in a hadith later by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa says, at times a person utters one word, la yulqi biha bala. He does not pay any attention to that one word. Not a sentence, not even a phrase, but kalimah. He, he utters one word, la yulqi biha bala. He pays no attention to that one word. Yahwi biha fi jahannam. Because of that one single word, he falls in the fire of jahannam. And in one narration, in some narrations for many, many years, because of one word. The thing is, he pays no attention to that word. He does not realize how serious it is. When it comes to the sins of the tongue, Allah and Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam have seriously warned us because we speak without knowledge, we speak without understanding. We hear something, we immediately repeat it. Allah says, وَتَقُونُونَ بِأَفْوَاهِكُمْ مَا لَيْسَ لَكُمْ بِهِ عِلْمٍ وَتَحْسَبُونَهُ هَيِّنَا وَهُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عَظِيمٌ And you were repeating with your mouths that of which you had no knowledge and you thought of it as being trivial, whereas it was great in the sight of Allah. وَلَوْلَا إِذْ And why wasn't it that when you heard this, قُلْتُمْ Why didn't you say, مَا يَكُونُ لَنَا أَن نَتَكَلَّمُ بِهَذَا It is not even permissible for us, it's not even lawful for us to speak of this. سُبْحَانَكْ Oh Allah, may you be glorified. هَذَا بُخْتَانٌ عَظِيمٌ This is a great allegation, this is a great calumny. This should be the attitude of the believers. When we hear allegations, rather than picking up the phone with a grin and a glint in our eye, an excitement of salacious gossip, rather than this itch to tell others, 
our first reaction should be, هذا إفكم مبين, this is a clear lie. Or, it's not even lawful for us, it's not even permissible for us to engage in such discussion or contemplation. It doesn't concern us. It does not concern us. Whenever any news reaches us, as, as Muslims, our first duty is to verify the facts, to ascertain the truth. And even that's not in everything. Only in those things which concern us. This is exactly what happened here. Some of us think that, oh, we are being good by trying to verify the facts. I'm acting on Islamic teachings when I'm verifying the facts, ascertaining the truth. Ascertaining the truth and verifying the facts is only in some circumstances. This is when it concerns you and you have to make a judgment. You have to decide. For example, a father hears something about his child. The father is responsible. The mother is responsible. They have a responsibility towards the son and daughter. This is a family affair. It concerns them primarily. So if someone says something about the son, the father should not fly into a rage immediately. He must do what the Qur'an says, which is, فتبين. Verify the facts. Ascertain the truth. However, why? Because it concerns him. And he is a concerned individual. Not concerned, meaning this concerns him. However, if it's someone else who has no interest, no concern, no relationship, no connection, and who does not have to make any judgments. Another example, an employer. An employer receives some news about an employee. Indeed, without taking action, well, instead of taking immediate action, the employer has a responsibility to verify the facts, to ascertain the truth. However, when it doesn't concern us, no matter how important it may be, no matter how sensitive it may appear to be, if it doesn't concern us, Allah has told us not even to verify the facts or ascertain the truth. What is the teaching? Allah says, what you should say is think good of yourselves and say, if I can't do it, he can't do it, she can't do it. This is a clear lie. Our reaction should be, it's not even lawful for me to discuss this, to think about this, to engage in this. This is a clear lie, a clear allegation. When Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha was accused by Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, and these rumors circulated in Medina, Allah didn't tell the people of Medina, go and verify the facts. People didn't, weren't told to go and question the Prophet ﷺ, or question Safwan ibn Mu'attal, or question Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. The only people who questioned her were those to whom it mattered. Who were they? Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anha, her father, Umm Ruman radiallahu anha, her mother, and the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ being the husband. Everyone else was told that what you should have done is say, it's not even lawful for us to speak of this. 
This is a clear lie. Concern yourselves with yourselves. Now imagine if we were to behave like that in such a noble, decent manner. Imagine the peace that we would give to ourselves and to others. Allahu Akbar. This is the teaching of Allah and His Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah then says, Allah warns you that you should ever return to something like this again if you are believers. And Allah makes clear His signs to you, His verses to you. And verily, Allah is all knowing, all wise. Allah then says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُحِبُّونَ أَنْ تَشْيِعَ الْفَاحِشَةَ فِي الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Indeed, those who love or who desire to see indecency and immorality and sin spread amongst the believers, for them is a painful punishment in the world and in the hereafter. Wallahu ya'lam and Allah knows and you do not know. Which means this is a dire warning that those who desire and wish to see lewdness, immorality and indecency spread amongst the believers have through their own contribution of their filthy words and their language and their rumours and their gossip and allegations. Allah says, and their desire to see indecency spread amongst the believers, indeed in word and in action and in thought, for them is a painful punishment. We have a responsibility to create and to maintain and preserve a pure climate amongst ourselves. And that pure climate can only be pure if we do not pollute it with our filthy language, our lies, our allegations, our indecent insinuations. If we desire to see the pure climate polluted, and if we desire to see fahisha, sin and indecency and immorality, both in word as well as in deed, spread amongst the believers, then Allah says, لَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ For them is a painful punishment in the dunya and in the akhirah. وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Allah knows and you do not know. Allah ends this section with the words, these are the ten verses, وَلَوْلَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ And had it not been for the grace of Allah and His mercy, i.e. you would have been punished. But Allah saved you. وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ رَؤُوفُ الرَّحِيمُ And indeed Allah is most compassionate, most merciful. This brings to an end these ten verses that were revealed on that occasion. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who understand the words of Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ وَسَلَّمَ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ وَرَسُولِهِ
This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.